Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So welcome to episode eight of Beyond Fear. And today we're going to talk about desistance from sexual offending. So we're making an intentional leap here. Um, We know this is sort of different from our previous episodes in that we've been really focused on the survivor narrative um, and looking at things from a victim's perspective. This episode is going to take us down the other half of that story. When Alexa and I first began studying sexual violence, as you've heard us talk about, we were very interested in studying um, the effects of victimization. We both wanted to work with survivors. Uh, And it didn't take us very long to figure out that in order to end sexual victimization, we had to go upstream and better understand why people sexually offend in the first place. Because if we don't understand why people sexually offend, or how to help them to stop sexually offending, we can never end victimization. So working specifically with survivors only was never going to get us to a place where we were doing anything to end victimization Mm -hmm. itself. So we didn't always take this position that we now take. Um, We were certainly more survivor focused. And I think it's important to note that all of our work is always centered on survivor healing and survivor voices. But in order to make sure that there are fewer survivors in the future, Mm -hmm. we have to be able to work with those who perpetrate sexually offending. Right. And if all of our goal is to end sexual violence, we have to understand why and how people get to the point that it happens in the first place. So in this episode, we will be talking about desistance. We will be interviewing Dr. Danielle Harris, whose research focuses almost exclusively on desistance from sexual offending. As always, we know that this content can be difficult to listen to. So please, if you need to, listen in short chunks with a friend or feel free to turn us off. I'm Dr. Alyssa Ackerman. And I'm Dr. Alexa Sardina, and this is Beyond Fear. The last several episodes of Beyond Fear have been centered on survivor experiences. This episode marks an intentional departure from that frame of reference and begins a conversation about people who commit sex crimes. We recognize that this might be difficult to hear, but it is our hope that since you've stuck with us through seven episodes, that you'll continue to listen with an open mind. To that end, we want to welcome my dear friend, Dr. Danielle Harris 
who is the Deputy Director of Research at the Griffith Youth Forensic Service and a senior lecturer in the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Griffith University. She has published more than 25 articles and book chapters and has given over 50 presentations at international conferences. She recently received the Australian and New Zealand Society of Criminology Christine M. Adler Book Award for her first book, Desistance from Sexual Offending. And Danielle, I am so excited that you are on this podcast today um, to think about the fact that I have cited you over my entire career and then only just met you in person a few years ago in a bar thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, I'm standing here with Danielle Harris. <laughs> to have you here today is really special. Thank you so much. I am. Um, it's a, a pleasure to be here. I am um, equally, equally excited. Thank you for being here, Danielle. As you guys know, and as Alyssa mentioned, we've been talking a lot in our previous episodes about victim and survivor experiences, the impact of the criminal justice system. Um, so in this episode, we're intentionally shifting gears here um, and having a discussion with you about desistance. So what do you think about that shift from sort of a victim perspective to a discussion of desistance amongst offenders? It, thank you again for having me. It's a it's an interesting shift. I've listened to the last uh, several episodes and uh, and gone on this journey with with you guys. And I think it's it's it, it's going to be difficult, and it's going it it's difficult, but it's also necessary. Um, and I think the the whole point of all of this, like if it's a too profound conclusion to draw to say hashtag it's complicated, like. All of the things that you have talked about so far have been uh, difficult and necessary and also underscored the fact that we're all connected and we're all in this together and that we don't really, we, we can't answer these questions by othering and we and the us versus them uh, approach is, is not getting us anywhere. And so I think for, for me the most important message through all of this is that uh, we're all in this together. And I think never before has that been more true. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if we can just backtrack a little bit, what we ask most of our experts when they come on, the first question we ask them is how you became interested in this field of research um, to begin with. So how did you become interested in looking at um, sexual offending? I've been really reflecting on the way that I answer this question. Um, and I, I think i I, I want to give you guys the, the true answer because for a really long time I've been very quick just to say, you know, oh, it was a, a class I took in undergrad and, and one thing led to another. Um, but I think I've been reflecting on this really deeply recently and the truth is I was raised uh, in the stranger danger generation and I was a little girl um, who wanted to walk to the shops and my parents were, um, you know, very careful and aware of of the real world and made it very clear to me from a very early age that I was not allowed to walk to the shops by myself and I knew exactly why and I probably knew more than I needed to at that age. Um, I looked just like the girls in the news who were raped and murdered and I that was such a horrible thing and I was aware of it and I knew that that's why I couldn't walk to the store and I think my pre-adolescent brain had convinced myself that that was my destiny, that that was going to happen. Um, and I became fascinated by 
uh, wanting to unpack that and wanting to know more about it. I wanted to be able to stop it because it was such a sure thing. Like it was something that we were all so scared of in school um, and we were all told to fear this. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, 30 years later, here I am and, um, and it's my job. So in your introduction, we talked a little bit about how you study specifically desistance from offending. So can you explain for our listeners what desistance means when we're talking, you know, as a crim term and why specifically you think it's important to study desistance in terms of sexual offending? Yeah, uh, desistance is, um, well, it still gets a red wiggly line under it in, um, in word processing programs, which, which frustrates me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a real thing. Uh, and it basically, it's a legal term. So think cease and desist, right? So cease is stopping and desist is keep not doing it. So mm-hmm. desistance is the, the process of slowing down or stopping, de-escalating, um, and, and remaining to not do something. To help us better understand and conceptualize desistance, it's also necessary to talk about recidivism because desistance is evidenced by the low recidivism rates of most people who perpetrate sexual violence. So perpetrators of sexual offenses, usually regardless of type, have higher rates of general recidivism for crimes other than sexual offenses than they do for sexual recidivism. So, for example, in a study conducted by Sample and Bray in 2003, the researchers examined arrest recidivism of over 148,000 people convicted of sexual offenses. At the one-year mark, 2.2% had a rearrest for another sexual offense, but 21.3% were rearrested for another non-sexual offense. At the three-year mark, 4.8% were rearrested for a sexual offense, and 37.4% were rearrested for a non-sexual offense. Finally, at the five-year mark, only 6.5 were rearrested for a sexual offense, but 45.1% were rearrested for a non-sexual offense. Several other researchers have identified this same pattern, which suggests that perpetrators of sexual offenses are far more likely to reoffend for a non-sexual offense than a sexual one. It is also worth noting here that perpetrators of sexual offenses have overall lower recidivism rates than perpetrators of non-sexual offenses. Yeah, I think it's important to note that pretty much every study that has ever been conducted on reoffending rates uh, for people who have committed sexual offenses, both small-scale studies and also very, very large meta-analyses, continue to find that reoffending rates and recidivism rates for uh, people who commit sex crimes remain very, very low compared to other types of offenses. 200 years of criminological thought have, um, have made this consistent finding across time and space that crime is a young person's game. The majority of people who commit crime are, you know, 16 to 22, and then it's just like really typical age crime curve that's a staple of of criminology and that the vast majority of crimes are committed by young people and that most people who commit crimes will eventually stop and they might stop for all manner of different reasons so they might stop because they get 
older and mature and just age out and just stop. They might stop because they go through some personal cognitive transformation and realize that they don't want to do this anymore. Uh, they might see the error of their ways. Um, they might develop stakes in conformity, um, to use the, the crim term, and they might, um, you know, get a job and, and go to college and join the military or get married and have kids and basically develop these stakes in conformity, these things to lose. So, um, the, the deterrent of, of going to prison and, and losing everything is suddenly, um, more profound. So most theories of crime are explanations of the onset and persistence of offending. These theories try to explain why some individuals, but not others, engage in crime. However, theories should not only explain onset and persistence, they should also explain desistence. And scholars are now exploring the process of desistence further. A key finding in desistance research is that people who commit crime can get out of a criminal lifestyle. If an individual establishes conventional social bonds, this could lead to a change in behavior. These bonds include marriage, finding a job, among other things. Fresh ties to conventional society may allow people to overcome criminal propensities and divert them from crime. Another key element in desistance may be that offenders approach opportunities to establish social bonds with a subjective openness for change to occur. Therefore, it's important to examine what the offender is thinking as they progress through their life. Dr. Harris explains that desistance from offending is conceptualized most usefully as a dynamic process replete with lapses, relapses, and respite. But before we can explain why someone slows or stops their offending, we need to have a clear sense of what they did, when they did it, and how they changed over time. So let's talk a little bit about your book, Desistance from Sexual Offending. Um, for what it's worth, the book is amazing. Um, True. As I read it, I could literally hear you reading the book to me. Like it is such an art form the way that you held and told these stories while also honoring your voice in the process. So reading it was like sitting across your kitchen table in Brisbane and just listening to you tell me the whole story. It was phenomenal. It means so much to hear that, Alyssa, because um, I, Shad Maruna's book, Making Good, was the, the sort yeah. of first book that I had ever read on, on desistance. And, and after meeting him a few times, I remember saying the same thing to him. Like, I felt like you were just telling me the story and you were talking to me. You can tell these stories in a, in a way that is, that is human and relatable and you want to be able to connect with them. When you're sitting across the table from a three-dimensional human being who has a name and who has a family and uh, that, yeah, it's, I think, uh, Alyssa, I think it might have been you that, that gave me the quote a while back that it's, it's hard to hate up close, so move in. That brings us to talk about some of the uh, humans in your book. So you start the book by telling Ross's story. Can you tell our listeners about Ross and why you chose his story for the preface? 
Yeah, um, so I interviewed 74 people uh, over a period of, of three years um, for the book and uh, I interviewed 74 people and there were 74 different kinds of sexual aggression and 74 different pathways into and out of that offending. I wanted to make sure that I was starting with somebody who really fit that mold of that quintessential child molester and and Ross was that he I know you have spoken previously on the podcast and uh, disambiguated the words child molester and pedophile which is of course so important so Ross was indeed both he identified as somebody who had a sexual attraction to children and he had multiple victims he had served several years he had participated in treatment he um he had been released and he had been out for a number of years and he was doing his best to return to to living a, a non-offending life this is something that had started very early for him he had been abused himself um that there was there, there was no way to excuse uh his his case so i wanted to i wanted to start with something that um, we're sort of unapologetically this is a this is a serious case of somebody who has done all of the things that we fear the most and yet uh, he appears to be um, he appears to be living an offense-free life in the community now and I wanted to tell the story of how that happened so can you talk a little bit more about this your study and the process that you went through so how did you identify these men what was your interview process like with them yeah, so the first uh, the first couple of years, I, I uh, drew on a convenient sample. So I worked with some colleagues in the Northeast um, US who uh, had um, treatment programs, and I would visit the treatment pro- the group treatment programs and talk to the men and um, and describe the study. And you know, they all know what recidivism is. Um, even without a crim degree, they understand that recidivism is this terrible thing that they and they're uh, a lot of the treatment that they're exposed to is uh, sort of selling this narrative that you're a ticking time bomb and you're going to do this again and we have to take care of all of these things so that you don't do it again. And and again, for some of the people in that room, that is very valid information. And they need to, they told me they need to work at it every day to not reoffend. But those people were extraordinarily few. The majority of the people in that room are there because of, uh, something, you know, that, that, that seems comparatively minor. So, uh, I started by interviewing guys in, in those groups and it sort of used a snowball sampling method where they talked to their friends and, and, um, and I got a, a larger group of people that way. It is important to note here that most of the men in Harris's study had committed very serious offenses and even these men desisted. They desisted in different ways, but they did stop. So most of the participants 81% in her study had child victims. Most of the men had committed acts of extrafamilial child molestation or incest. And a smaller group of men had raped only adults. Four men claimed to have committed non-contact sexual offenses exclusively, meaning possession or distribution of child pornography or voyeurism. So you talked a little bit about your sample and um, how you contacted 
potential participants for this study. Um, but were there certain participants whose interviews really stood out to you in your memory when you think back, you know, about this study? Is there anybody that really stands out in your mind? To answer your question, the thing that stuck out for me was the the sheer multitude of of uh, stories. Um, and I really had come to this thinking, you know, this is a, I'm going to interview a a bunch of sex offenders and that they're all going to have these certain characteristics because that's what I've been taught all of this time. And I didn't interview a bunch of sex offenders. I interviewed a bunch of men who had been convicted for allegedly the commission of a a sexual offense. Danielle, why is it so important to hear from the voices of these men? It was about t- telling a story that I hadn't heard before and, and trying to understand a perspective that I didn't have. In criminology, we, there's this whole tradition of trying to answer the question of why people commit crime. Then we started talking about control theories and started to think about why some people don't commit crime, which is another really important question. And I think the, the missing piece of that is how do we understand people who have committed crime who then no longer engage in that crime. And, uh, and I wanted to unpack that for a group of people for whom it was assumed that they didn't stop. These guys just keep on going and will do it constantly until their death. And that's not the case. Um, and so I, I, uh, I, I, I just wanted to, to understand that and to see if there was a recovery narrative available for people that had committed sex offences. And of the 74 people that I interviewed, there were 74 different pathways into and there were 74 different pathways out of offending. There was an extraordinary range of seriousness of, of this particular offence. And I think putting them all in the same bucket, it does an extraordinary disservice and... Um, and it's we we have limited resources and we should direct them where they need to be directed. So just as people in the study committed different kinds of offenses for different reasons, offending and desistance is explained by individual differences alongside environmental differences, social interactions, and random or chance events. So in other words, there's no set pathway to desistance. Each person is different and has a different course of offending. For example, Harris identified different pathways and strategies for change over time. She divided the men in her sample into three main groupings, those that had retired, those that had regulated, and those that had recovered. So when we talk about those that have retired, that means that they naturally desisted or aged out of crime or specifically out of sexual offending. This is very similar to the age crime curve that we talked about uh, earlier in the episode, that what we know from the criminological literature is that the vast majority of people begin offending around a certain age and then simply age out and stop offending. Again, that's no different for um, some people who sexually offend. The second type of desistance that Harris found was regulation. So this was the ability of the men in her study to navigate and adapt to increasingly restrictive rules and conditions set by law. And then finally, there was a group of people in 
Harris's study who fit a recovery narrative, which meant that they took a rehabilitative stance or a resilient stance. So those that took a rehabilitative stance reported being profoundly and positively impacted by their experience of therapy and treatment and maintained that they had restored themselves to some degree of normal life because of that therapy and treatment. Whereas the second group of people who fit the recovery narrative talked about resilience. So they were very similar to the men who fit the rehabilitative narrative, but their story was more internalized and subtle. They talked about transformation having occurred largely independently of treatment and psychotherapy. You know, Danielle, we have talked about this at length um, at dinner parties and around the dinner table. But what would you say to the survivors who are listening? What would you want them to know? I would want them to know that I am doing this for them. The way that the criminal justice system has said this is how we should treat this problem and the way that the treatment industry has decided that we should assess and, uh, you know, risk assess and treat and prevent and whatever. I mean, we're obviously doing a really terrible job because it keeps happening. If the system, if we could arrest our way out of this, we would have done it by now because there's a million Americans on the public sex offender register, right? I think for me, the, the, the point of all of this is that we're ignoring the ordinariness of it. And I don't mean ordinariness as in, um, uh, you know, that it's not, that it's not important or, or that it's, uh, trivial. I mean, ordinariness as in it happens every day. It happens all the time. And the more, the, the sooner we realize that we are not talking about monsters with horns and scales who are aliens, the, the more that we realize that when we're talking about uh, I mean, Ross says it in the in the beginning of the book, you know, if people realized that we're talking about their brothers, their uncles, their priests, their scoutmasters, then you would have to treat them with compassion because you would realize that they're all that that we're all connected, um, that we're not talking about sex offenders as an other group of people. They, they come from our communities and they will be returning to our communities. I'm. The vast majority of people that go to that go to prison will one day be released. And um, what do we want that release to look like? If we want them to not reoffend, we need to do things differently. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that perfectly sums it up, and I think it speaks to exactly why I have come to do work with men who sexually offend. Well, thank you so very much for being on this episode of the podcast. Uh, when we first envisioned this, there was a list of people who we knew we could, like, this podcast would not be a success without having them on, and you are one of those people. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. It, it's been a, a pleasure um, to, to, to be involved. I think that you guys are doing a, a phenomenal job, and uh, I'm definitely uh, a fan of your work, and to be included is a real honor. Thank you so much. So now that we've finished this interview uh, with Dr. Harris, we thought that it was important to take a few moments to 
talk a little bit more about why we made this deliberate switch to talking about people who commit sex crimes and why we see this deliberate switch as so important and where we're going from here. So I think it's really important to reiterate that, you know, Alexa and I, we are survivors first, but we are also two people who have spent a good portion of their adult lives studying policy and practice with regard to people who sexually offend. And what we have learned over time is the importance of humanizing these individuals because they are coming back to our communities. You know, if we want to talk about throwing people in prison and then getting what they deserve, that's one conversation to have. But as you've heard on this podcast, the vast majority of people who commit sex crimes are never prosecuted. They will never see a day behind bars. And we can have entire conversations about whether or not we believe that time behind bars will actually do anything to end sexual violence. The research is pretty clear that it doesn't. So the vast majority of people who commit these offenses, one, are never going to be punished in the criminal justice system. And even if they were, that really isn't going to do anything to end victimization. So early on in our careers, we made this switch to better understanding why sexual offending happens, how to prevent it from happening, and how to work with people who have offended to ensure that they don't reoffend. So we made a deliberate switch from the criminal justice process, and in particular, a rape trial, is incredibly traumatizing for people who have experienced sexual harm. So if the criminal justice system isn't working, and we know, as we've talked about in this episode, that the vast majority of people who sexually offend are going to stop offending with or without intervention from the criminal justice system. That is a conversation worth having. And we know that that's hard to hear. In the work that I have done, I have personally been called a rape apologist and a sex offender lover because of the stance that I take. But it is because I never want anybody to experience the trauma that I experienced, that I do this work with the lens that I do. And also, I think another key part of that, Alyssa, is the fact that the research supports that approach and that stance. If there was no research to suggest that people who perpetrate sexual offenses desist, it would be a different conversation. But when we look at recidivism rates and we look at the literature now on desistance, we see that Indeed, people can stop offending sexually. So we need to understand that process and really, you know, focus more attention to it. And this is all very much associated with current policies in the U.S. around people who perpetrate sexual harm. So throughout this episode, we really focused on what needs to happen or what elements need to be um, available in order for a person to desist from crime. So we talked a little bit about quality social bonds, like a healthy relationship, a job, and stable home, and a transformation in how one views themselves. But unfortunately, with the policies we have right now, um, we, we're basically stripping offenders of every opportunity to obtain these social bonds. 
things like the publicly available registry, residence restrictions, and limited job opportunities keep people convicted of sexual offenses from the very tools that are necessary to avoid recidivism and to successfully desist. We will talk about this more in our next episode when we dive into sex crimes policies in the U.S. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Fear. We would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast and also to answer any questions that you might have or hear your opinions about some of the topics we've covered. You can contact us at beyondfearpodcast at gmail.com. Remember, you can also find all of our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all other podcasting platforms. Head to our website at www.beyondfearpodcast.com for blog posts, resources, readings, and episode transcripts. Follow us on Twitter at Fear Crimes, Instagram at Beyond Fear Podcast, and like and follow our Facebook group called Beyond Fear the Sex Crimes Podcast.